All right, good morning, y'all. Happy New Year. Good to see you guys. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thank you guys for joining us this morning. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2022. You made it. Congratulations. You get to start a new year. That's, that's your reward for making it. So, well done. Uh, every year around this time, of course, we talk about resolutions, not just here, but culturally, right? Because that's what we do. It's a cultural obsession. There are those who make resolutions and those who make fun of those who make resolutions. Those are the two camps. Um, I was for a long time in the latter camp, I have to admit, uh, as one who kind of mocked the idea of resolutions and made fun of those who made them, right? They were resolutions or promises you make to yourself knowing you're going to break them, right? Happy New Year. Can you believe it's been a whole year since I didn't become a better person, right? It's that it's that same thing. We make the same promises, make the same resolutions, have the same positive thinking, right? For, for years, um, my daughter and I used to go work out in the gym, and every January, man, you just knew, right? Okay, you got about a month, right? But in a month, it's going to go back to normal, right? All these new people who are crowding all the machines are going to go back, and we'll have this space back to ourselves, right? So it is kind of a joke because we make resolutions and we break them. We're, they're well-intentioned. They're good ideas. Um, but they're often unsuccessful. But here's the thing, I don't make fun anymore. I just don't. Um, one, because I want to become a better person, and I believe you do too, and I, I don't think there's any room, honestly, for, for making fun of that. I, I think we need to be encouraging each other. We need fewer, fewer people um, who are sarcastic jerks and, and more people who are actually cheerleaders. Let's just be honest. Um, it doesn't cost anything to be positive and supportive and I appreciate it when people support me, and I have learned that others appreciate it when I support them. Um, so I don't make fun anymore, and, and honestly, uh, I've done a lot of thinking about this annual need to change, right? So yeah, it's the beginning of a new year. It's a totally arbitrary time. Yeah, there's nothing magical about the turning of a calendar. It's really just another day, but culturally, it carries a lot of significance. A lot of us really do reevaluate our lives on a yearly basis. We look back and we look forward. We think about who we've been. We think about who we want to be. We think about what we've experienced and what we want to experience, right? And so I do think it is worth going through that process. I do think it is worth considering, you know, am I living the life I want to live? Am, am I experiencing what I want to experience, right? Because the Bible is full of incredible promises of more, more joy, more freedom, more power, more, more purpose, more security, more, more faith, right? Are, are you living in that? I kind of geek out on, on leadership and productivity books. Um, I enjoy studying. It's a little bit of human psychology. It's a little bit of group dynamics. It's a little bit of... of um, honestly, just learning to work with the human condition. And, and I kind of enjoy that. Over the last couple of years, one of the, the better, what I would call, leadership books or self-leadership books would be James Clear's Atomic Habits. Uh, if you are looking for concrete ways to actually help you change significant behaviors in your life, that book's a, a huge help, okay? He just very simply looks at the psychology of how we change, how we make decisions, how we make commitments, and actually how we build habits. And I'm tempted to coach you, honestly. Um, I, I would love to see you reach your goals, whatever they are, right? And they're always the same. Every year there's goals about, I want to lose weight, I want to get healthy. I, I, I want to stop eating so much sugar. I, I, I want to go back to college. I, I, I want to make more money. I, I, I want to get a better job. I, I, I want to read more books. I, I want to go back to college. Whatever it is, right? There's a thousand things, right? 
you know, a few simple tips, right? Don't make resolutions. Make goals. Resolutions are just wishes. Goals are concrete, right? So don't make resolutions, set goals. And when you're setting your goals, look at the behaviors, not the outcomes. Don't think about the end result that you want to achieve. Think about the behaviors you need to create to get there. What are the behaviors that are getting in the way that need to be stopped? What are the behaviors that aren't getting you there that need to be started? Right? So think about behaviors, not, not outcomes. Right? And then anchor those habits. When you want to create new habits, this is one of the great insights from Clear's book. Uh, when you want to create new habits, think about the things you already do that are automatic. Those are habits. Habits are things that you do without thinking about them. Just automatic, right? Think about the things that you do that are automatic and anchor new habits to old habits. So in other words, actually think through, okay, every morning when I get up, I put my feet on the floor, okay? That's a great start, right? But as soon as my feet fit the, hit the floor, I'm going to drop and do 10 push-ups, okay? And then every morning when you wake up, have it next to you, right? Either written down or, and it reminds you. And then what you've done is you're anchoring a new habit to an old habit. Uh, you can do that every single time, you know, if you're at work and, and you want to be more hydrated. Every time I sit in my chair, I will drink water. And you have that written down. And then what ends up happening is, is when you anchor new habits to old habits, they actually become automatic faster, okay? Um, so there you go. There's a few tips. But here's the thing. I'm not your productivity coach, okay? That's not who I am. I'm not your life coach. I'm your pastor. And the truth is, I am really not as concerned with whether or not you reach your goals as I am with whether or not you're setting the right goals to begin with, okay? Because it doesn't matter if you're achieving your goals if they're not the right goals, right? Uh, it doesn't help if you get where you want to go, but have no sense of where that's actually going to take you. Um, we're living life, honestly, very much like a driver who relies on his GPS, but his GPS isn't connected to the satellite, right? We've, we plug in a destination into our car, but it's not anchored to any broader reality or sense of what is true or real. And as a result, what we do is, is we keep hoping we're going to get to a destination by setting new goals, but we don't know how those goals are actually going to get us to our destination. So it doesn't matter if I help you become more efficient in getting there. I'm not helping you. It doesn't matter if I help you get there more effectively or faster or, or with greater, um, uh, less waste. Or You know what I'm saying? Like the, the key is to have a broader sense of what is true and what is real so that your compass can actually set, be set to what is true so that the goals you set actually move you toward the fullness and flourishing of life because that's what you want. That's what you want. You want the fullness and flourishing of life. You want more joy. You want more purpose. You want a greater sense of being loved. You want to have a greater sense of worthiness of respect, more significance. You, you, you want to have uh, more comfort and, and, and not just more comfort, but honestly more rest, right? Like genuine soul rest. You, you want more um, security. Th those are the things you want. Those are the, the things that come together that, that are part of what we call the fullness and the flourishing of life. It, it's the way we know life is supposed to be, and we're longing to experience it, right? And so my question is, do you have the GPS that helps you get there? So that you're not just chasing the things that promise it but never deliver it, but actually you're moving in a progressive way into a greater experience of the promises that God has given a greater experience of the fullness and flourishing of life that comes to us in the gospel. 
We are going to be, over the next four weeks, talking about four critical truths that will help you discern and help you know if you're moving in the right way. Four critical truths that operate as the four points of the compass that will help you orient your decisions, help you orient your priorities, help you, help you think through your goals so that you will know whether or not you are moving in a greater sense into what is real and true and will give you greater life. And these four truths are honestly deceptively simple. In fact, they're going to seem like they should just belong down in Trailhead Kids, okay? I'm going to give them to you, the four truths. God is great. God is good. God is gracious. And God is glorious. Those four fundamental truths operate as the four points of the compass. And if we keep ourselves oriented to those truths, we will set goals that help us actually move toward the greater fullness and flourishing of life and not just into a deceptive image of it. This morning, we're going to be looking at the first one, God is great. Okay, And we're going to lead to an application, God is great so I can take the right risks. Okay, that's going to be kind of where we're going to go with it. Um, but that's what we're going to be looking at is God is great. We're looking at Colossians 1, 15 through 17 this morning in order to go there. So open up your Bibles to Colossians 1, looking at 15 through 17. If you have apps, go ahead and open up your apps. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. If you don't own a Bible, keep it, right? Just take it. Take the one on the chair in front of you and keep it and read it, okay? So we're going to Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 983. Page 983. Okay, Colossians 1, starting in verse 17, 15, reading through verse 17. All right, he is the image of the invisible God, he being Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, y'all. For Advent, we spent uh, the entire month of December and the end of November in John chapter 1, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Love John. Um, but I'll remind you of, of because the, the truths of John 1 overlap powerfully with the, the things we're going to be looking at in Colossians 1 this morning. So let me remind you of, of, uh, of um, John 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, okay? In the beginning was the Word, and of course the Word is Jesus, the very thought or expression of God, who in verse 14 becomes flesh and dwelt among us, right? So in the beginning was Jesus, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All right? So just a reminder, right? Paul and John agree. Jesus is God. Okay? Pre-incarnate as well as incarnate. What that means is Jesus was God before the world was even created. Jesus was God throughout the many, many years before he came into the world. He was still God when he took on flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us that we might see his glory, right? Um, So whether he was pre-incarnate or in his incarnate state, Jesus was God and he was with God. That crazy mystery of the fact that, that God is multiple persons, but one God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three who's, one what? 
It <laughs> doesn't, make, doesn't make any logical sense, um, but it's how God has revealed himself. Um, and, and so here's the thing, where John simply says, if something was created, it was created by Jesus, right? That's kind of what he says. If, if there was anything that was created, it was created by him. Paul focuses our attention, not just on the fact that Jesus created everything, but that he's in control of everything he created, okay? So let's take a look at our verses. Verse 15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's the foundation of of this thought. These two phrases have tripped up a lot of people, and we've got to be careful with them, right? He he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, okay? Um, If we are not careful students of the Word, what we're going to do is we're going to read those things, and we're just going to import our thoughts into those words. And good students don't do that. Good students actually ask questions like, what did the original author mean? Okay? In his context, in his culture, in his language, what did those words mean? What did those ideas express? And then we walk away not just importing our ideas into the text, but allowing the text to shape our ideas. That's really what we need to do. So, so let's talk about this, the image of the invisible God. There are some people who would teach that what this means is that Jesus is kind of a reflection of God. When we think of image, that's what we think of, like a mirror, right? So when you look in a mirror, that image isn't really you, it's a reflection of you, right? When you look at a coin, the image on the coin isn't really that dude, it's an image of that dude, right? So if Jesus is an image of God, it means he's not really God, he is the expression, he looks a lot like God, he is a God or maybe a a reflection of God or very God-like or however people want to describe it. Um, and of course, that is not what Paul means, as we're going to show you. But image of God here means this. It means that, that Jesus makes known what we wouldn't have known without Jesus. Jesus shows us what we couldn't have seen if he hadn't become man. If God hadn't chosen to reveal himself in this way, the invisible God would remain invisible. Okay, so um, John put it this way in John chapter 1, in verses 18 and 19. I'll put this on the screen behind me. No one has ever seen God. That's the first sentence. He's invisible. He's spirit. We're uh, designed to interact with a physical world. God is not part of the physical world. He's outside of it. No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. (laughs) All right? So Jesus, who is God, the invisible God, became man in order that, that we might know we couldn't have known without Him. So when it says he is the image of the invisible God, what it's saying is that he's the perfect expression of who God is in a way that we can see it and understand it, at least to some degree, and perceive it, right? Jesus makes God known because he is God. The only God who's at the Father's side, the Word became flesh, the image of the invisible God. It says he is the firstborn of all creation. Once again, we run into trouble. There's some people who would teach that this means that Jesus uh, was the first of all creation. The most important and the most beautiful, but the first of all creation. That he was a created being, the first thing that God ever created, the firstborn of all creation. And of course, that also is a misunderstanding of the terminology. When it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it's talking about his position over creation, not the order of creation. In... uh, Paul's time in that culture, firstborn was a position, not an order of birth. You could actually have a firstborn that wasn't even born to your family. Like you could have a firstborn who's a cousin because you didn't have any kids, right? 
You could have a firstborn who was appointed firstborn. Firstborn is position, not an order of birth. Now, obviously, most of the time it was the firstborn son, right? Um, but if that firstborn son never came, it was simply designated to somebody else. The firstborn son carried all the authority of the father. The firstborn son um, was the one who would inherit the entire estate and then manage it for the good of the rest of, of the estate, including his brothers and sisters, um, other servants, um, anybody, right? The firstborn had a position of authority, preeminence, strength, and power. The firstborn was the one who sat in authority over the estate that he inherited, okay? So when it says that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, what it means is that he sits in authority over what he's created. That he is not only the one who made it, but he's the one who inherits it. He sits in that position, right? Now, of course, there's an indication or, or, or a nod to the fact that God the Father is the one who is supreme overall. God the Father is, is uh, preeminent in glory, right? God the Son holds a unique place in the sense that God the Son sits in that position of authority. We get in danger, honestly, anytime we make too strong a distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, because the reality is there's only one God. And the attributes of one are the attributes of another because they're all the same, okay? But they are unique in personhood and in the way that they operate in this world, okay? So he holds a position of authority. He is not part of creation. That is made clear in verse 16. For by him all things were created. All right, a little grammar lesson. If he created all things, he couldn't have created himself, right? All means all, not all but one, right? It doesn't say all other things, right? Like God the Father created him and then he went and created everything else. No, it's all things. Anything that was created, this is what John said, anything that was created was created by him, right? Um, so, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So now we're talking about the angelic and um, physical realm, visible and invisible, right? So he's driving home that point of, of both physical and non-physical, material and spiritual, right? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Um, here's something that's kind of interesting. We know when we read through Genesis 1 and 2, God created all things. He spoke, spoke it into existence, right? When you read through Genesis 1, you have the six days of creation, seven days of rest. He created plants. He created wildlife and fish, and, and he created vegetation. And, and on the sixth day, he created the, the, the ultimate piece of his creation, mankind, humanity, right? He created Adam and Eve, and he, and he created them in his own image, unique in all of creation, right? And he breathes his life into them. Right? He doesn't just make them alive. He breathes his life into them, and, and they become uh, his representatives, his stewards over the rest of creation. They're unique. Okay? Um, after Genesis, after the sixth day of creation, we don't have any more re description of God creating. God on the seventh day rested, and he just kept right on resting. Guess who started creating after that? Humans. Right? Humans did all the creating from that point forward. They were created in the image of God, and they were bearing that image as they went forward and did what God did, right? They took the, the, the responsibility of being created in the image of God, and, and now they took the gift of culture, the gift of creation, and they imaged God by creating more of it, okay? So what's interesting is that when Paul says that Christ created uh, thrones 
and, and, and dominions and rulers and authorities, he's saying something kind of profound. Because we know humans are the ones who created those things. Humans created thrones. Humans created dominions. Humans raised up rulers. Humans established authorities. Humans voted for politicians. Humans determined who was going to hold office. Humans determined who was going to be king. Humans determined when things would stay stable and when they erupted in revolution. Humans did these things. Not only that, angels did too. And there is a reference or a nod here to the angelic order as well because these four words uh, were well known in um, the, the first century Jewish world as referring to the ranks of angelic order, right? So when we read, look at extra biblical uh, content, what we find is those four words spoke of angelic realms as well. So, so Paul's speaking of both, that, that Jesus created thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, both angelic and earthly, that he, that he was the one who did it, even though Angels made choices and we did too. So in other words, listen, there's nothing God created that can act outside of His power. There's nothing that God created that is not carrying forward His creational intent that can act outside of His power. Why? Because He's the firstborn. He's the firstborn over all creation. All things were created through Him and all things were created for Him, right? So this is our concept. God is great. God is great. There's there's no comparison. He's absolutely sovereign over his creation. There's nothing that happens that is outside of his control. There is nothing that happens that is outside the boundaries of his sovereignty. God is great. Now, this leads to an obvious and, I would say, necessary question. Because we know anywhere power exists in this world, power is abused. We know thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities. Whether we're talking political or personal, often use that power to hurt the people they're supposed to protect. Instead of using their God-given authority in order to increase the fullness and the flourishing of life for all of humanity, they exercise their power in ways that privilege themselves and harm others. Now, that can happen in the home. When you have a parent who's an abusive parent, a spouse who violates covenant, a politician who breaks promises, who acts in self-interest instead of the broader interest of others. It happens all the time. So here's, here's the obvious question. If God is in control, and He is the one who is in control, is in control, has sovereign power over thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, over all power structures and the expression of that power, does that make God responsible for evil? If God is in control of the systems that produce evil, is He responsible for the evil they produce? It's a legitimate question and a good one. 
I'm going to give you a simple answer, but it's far from simple. Because here's the thing, and I, and I throw this caveat. Um, evil is never simple because evil is always personal. There are no simple answers when it comes to personal pain. I just want to acknowledge that up front. Because we have all suffered at the hands of someone. And we have probably all suffered at the hands of somebody who exercised an authority or a power they had that should have been used to protect us or to bless us, and they used it to hurt us. And there's no simple answer for that pain. Right? There's no easy answer that's going to remove that pain or take away the difficulty of working through it. I'm just, let's just put that out there and be honest about that. That doesn't mean, though, that there's not a simple understanding that helps us create a framework to make sense of that pain and to process that pain in a healthy way. And that's this, y'all. Theologically, there's a concept that's called concurrence. Okay? Concurrence. And what that means is this. It means that God is completely, non-negotiably, absolutely in control as he reveals himself to be. That by his very nature, he can't help but be in complete control because he knows all things and he has all power. Sovereignty is the natural expression of being God. He can't help but be God and in control of all things. He is absolutely, sovereignly God. Concurrently, He has given us the ability to exercise free will. He has given us the ability to exercise the power of choice. And we can't choose evil. And we do <laughs> a lot. And others do too. And we cause other people's suffering and other people have suffered because of us. Concurrence. God is sovereign. You are free. You're like, wait a minute, Steve. That's a nice little paradigm you created there, but that doesn't make any sense. Right? If God's in control of all of my choices like literally in control of all my choices, then he's in control of what I wore today. And yet I distinctly remember picking what I was going to wear today. Or somebody picked it for me. Right? How can that be true? That doesn't make any sense. That, that's a paradox. Right? It's, it's a pretzel of logic. Is God in control or do we have free will? I'm sorry, but the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Listen, in theology, anytime we're talking about God, we need to get comfortable with tension and mystery. Because there are aspects of who God is and how He operates that are not going to make any sense to us. Because God was not created in the image of man. Man was created in the image of God. We share all the attributes of God, but in a very, very limited sense. And as a result, we can understand a little about God, but most of what is true about God is going to mystify us. It's going to be a mystery. 
And the problem is we don't like mysteries. We don't like tension. We try to turn tensions to be managed into problems to be solved. And you see the theology brothers doing this all the time, right? Theology bros are all arguing, and, and what they're doing is they're like, no, 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 it's free will. No, 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 it's God's sovereignty. No, no, no. And they turn a both and into an either or because they're trying to reduce the tension and solve the mystery. And you can't. You can't. And what this means is that God exercises his sovereignty through the agency of man's free will. That is a sentence that will blow your brain up the longer you think about it. Because it doesn't make any sense, but it's the way it is. God exercises his sovereignty through the agency of man's free will. Listen, the bottom line is this is really good news. Some people think that they're doing themselves a favor by, you know, like, well, God's figuring out the future along with us. (laughs) He's not really sovereign. He doesn't really know all things. He's just really well-intentioned, doing his best to keep it on the rails. You know, like like, as if it were some sort of cosmic version of the movie Speed, right? The good news is it's not, okay? God is not Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock trying to keep the bus on the road, right? Oh, no, we better not drop below 50 or we're going to blow up. Oh, no, we better not go on that on-ramp or we're going to run into things. Oh, no, we better, right? And they're constantly reacting and doing their best to try to keep this thing survivable, right? So that they can maybe have a love story at the end of it, right? Wouldn't be much of a love story if they just blew up on the highway. Thankfully, that is not cosmic reality. God is not out of control. He is not reacting to history. He is controlling history. He is not trying to figure it out along with us. He knows where it's been. He knows what's happening. He knows where it's going. And he has the power to turn it. And he does because he is always in control. His hand is on the wheel. God is great. He has never lost control. Even as he has given us the freedom to make choices that are rebellious against him. God is in control even as he has given us the ability to make choices that are meant to dethrone him and defraud him of his glory. God is in control even as he has given us the ability to blaspheme him by using our power to hurt others created in his image. God is in control. God is great. And he promises that he will use that control to ultimately use even our bad choices for good ends. He promises that the bus is not out of control, even though it seems chaotic, and it seems like there's no sense. Right? We're living in one sentence of one paragraph, of one chapter, of a large novel called Human History. And in our one sentence, the story may not seem to make any sense at all. But God says, I am the God over the story, and I am in control of the story. And he will tell his greater story of redemption and restoration through the human story of rebellion. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Now we're going to get into Romans chapter 8 next, next uh, month in February. Super excited about that, Romans 8. Incredible chapter. But he says this. He says, and we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How can God work all things together for good if he's not in control? It doesn't say it's his best intention or he's going to make his best effort. Or as long as he can keep the bus on the road, this thing will actually end up in a good spot. It says he works all things, even bad things, together for the good. There's a definite article in front of good, which I love, because it means that God isn't simply talking about what is good and pleasant in the moment, but he's talking about what is truly good and in line with the fullness and flourishing of life. He will turn the human story into a story of redemption and restoration because he is great. All right, let me give you an illustration and then we're going to land with an application. The illustration is in verse 17. In verse 17, Paul goes on and he says, and he is before all things. And what he means by that, of course, is that he's preexistent. He existed before all things were created. He created them, right? But he also means that he's before them in his preeminence. Because he's the firstborn of all creation, he has a position uh, of authority and, and of preeminence and of glory. He is before all things in the sense that he is the most important of all things, right? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This verse struck me the first time I read it. There are certain verses uh, in the Bible that I remember reading because they just lit up my imagination. They landed on my heart and on my mind in ways that left an impression. And this is one of those because I remember reading, man, he holds all things together. It was just this, this transcendent, profound thought to me, right? He is literally holding the fabric of the universe together. That's his power. Like, that's not a stretch for his power. That's not, it's not that he's strong enough to. <laughs> like that is simply the natural expression of his power. He is God. And as God, he holds all things together. Now, as over the years, I've, I've found what I think are some fairly natural illustrations of this. And, and I'm going to warn you, I'm going to put a caveat up front. I'm not a scientist, and I've got some scientist friends, and they get after me sometimes because I'm not a scientist. I'm a literature guy. I love words. I love stories. I love grammar. I love the formation of language and the communication of thoughts. Those things are fascinating to me. Science is really cool and all, but it's not where I've invested all my energy, nor, nor is it really my, my interest. But I've learned a few things that I think are fascinating. Um, and so scientific folks, I'm just going to ask, you know, Give me a little bit of wiggle room in my illustration. I remember learning the first time about atomic structures. Now, to give you a little reminder, um, everything is made of atoms, right? In fact, everything's made of molecules, right? The chair you're sitting on is made of molecules. You're made of molecules. Your clothes are made of molecules. Um, the food you ate this morning, the air you breathe, it's all molecules put together in different ways to create um, different substances, different things that operate and have different properties, right? So at the heart of all things are, are molecules, right? Including your brain and, and the synapses right now that are firing that allow you to listen to me and process it, right? All molecules, okay? Molecules are made up of atoms. So if you get into even a smaller microscopic level, every molecule is made up of three kinds of atoms. You're talking about protons, neutrons, and electrons. At the, at the heart of a molecule in the nucleus are protons, and they have a positive charge, and neutrons, they have a neutral charge, no charge at all. 
and then around them revolve electrons that have a negative charge. Okay? And then depending on how those things are combined determines what kind of molecule you end up with and what kind of material thing is developed out of it. Right? Now, to give you a little lesson, um, have you ever had magnets, like big magnets? One time my dad had, you guys remember those big stand-up speakers that are like old school, totally old school with the big woofers and then the middle, mid-range and the tweeter on top and, and you know, like, like that was the system, man. That was the system, 70s and 80s, you wanted those things, they were giant. Now you can get the same sound out of a tiny little box, but those things, my dad had some and I tore them apart because I wanted the magnets out of them because they're fun to play with. And so I did that, I tore them apart because behind the woofers were these giant magnets. And when you got those things apart, man, when you put them together, remember opposites attract and likes repel, right? So if you turn the two magnetic sides so that they're opposite each other, what do they do? They slam together. In fact, those things were so powerful that if you got your finger in the middle of them, it would smash them. Okay, that was fun. Uh, and, and so magnets, opposite attract. Now, the opposite is also true. If you get the polar, the similar sides, get, try to go together, you're like this. You ever played with them like that? Like it's, and the game was to try to actually get them to touch, right? Oh, and then it would, because they were super powerful. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, hopefully that illustration helped you understand. That's what it looks like, okay, when you're playing with mag magnetic forces. In the heart of every molecule, you have those forces. The, the, the protons are positive. They repel one another, and yet they're together in the nucleus. They, they're continually pushing against each other. And it's so powerful that if you split it, it creates a nuclear explosion. That's what a nuclear explosion is. It's the, the fission. It's the, the breaking of the nucleus of an atom. And what ends up happening is those protons shoot out with such force that they hit other atoms or other molecules and they break those molecules and then those molecules shoot out and it creates this chain reaction where everything just melts down. That's a nuclear explosion. You are a nuclear bomb. It's not just plutonium that has the ability. Plutonium is just unstable enough that we can figure out how to split the atom. You have the same force in you. And in the chair, you're sitting on a nuclear bomb right now. Why isn't it exploding? Now, not only that, around the protons, you've got these electrons, right? Opposites attract. Everything we know tells us that the electron should collapse on the proton, that it should be sucked in, that we should become immediately like whoop, Sucked into subatomic particles of density where everything is like the opposites attract and all of a sudden everything that, that, that is in the space between disappears. Why are we not either exploding or contracting? I asked a scientific friend of mine and I'm like, okay, use layman's language, please. Don't talk to me about atomic weight. I'm not going there, okay? I'm not doing math. Don't like it, Okay. And the answer is, the simple answer is, is, is atomic force. What's atomic force? Atomic force is the power that keeps the molecule stable and keeps it from either exploding or contracting. Okay? Then what is that force? It's atomic force. What is atomic force? Atomic force is the force that keeps the molecule from either imploding or exploding. What is that force? It's atomic force. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but scientists don't do well with mystery. They often name things as a way to resolve things. If we give it a name, then at least we know what it is, right? What is it? I don't know. 
okay? But we can measure it, and we can study it, and we can analyze it. Gravity's the same. We can measure it, we can analyze it, we can study it. We don't know what it is, right? Do you realize that the earth at the, at the uh, equator is spinning at 1,000 miles an hour? You ever been on a merry-go-round that goes too fast? Right? When I was a young parent, I was a little too exuberant, and I would get the kids on there, and I would spin that thing, and I would have children all over the playground, okay? which I thought was awesome until somebody started crying. Right? Why are we not being flung into the outer reaches of space? Well, because of gravity. Well, what's gravity? Gravity is the force that holds us to a planetary object. What is the force that holds us to a planetary object? It's gravity. Okay. I, you know, it's Jesus, y'all. That's, that's my answer. It's Jesus. And, and I know that's totally unscientific and it makes me sound ignorant, but it's Jesus. That's, and, and I'm not saying that there aren't natural explanations, right? I'm not anti-scientific. Uh, I believe God created natural order with natural laws and natural rules. And I think scientists are, are given the commission of actually breaking it all down to figure out how it works. <laughs> I'm pro-science, right? Uh, but I do believe there are mysteries. And I believe at the end of the day, God is the one who even holds the laws of the universe in place. He's the one who created them. He holds it all together. That means that even as he was being nailed to the cross, he was holding together the hammer and the hand that held it. It meant that even as he was being betrayed, he was holding together those who betrayed him. God is great. But I think it means more than just the physical holding of the universe together. He's holding together the meta-narrative of the universe. He's, he's holding together the greater story of the universe. The story that he will tell of creation and redemption and restoration. He's holding it all together. He holds all things together because He is great. He is sovereign. He is in control. And He holds it all together. Now, scientists, friends, before you go all Stephen Hawking on me, um, just know it's an illustration. And if you want to talk to me about atomic theory um, or, or gravity, buy me some coffee. I always love to learn. Okay? The point is this. We believe that God created it all and that he is the one who holds it all together. The world, our bodies, our lives, our stories, it all comes from him. It's all for him. And in the end, he's the one that's working all things together for good with a purpose to redeem and restore. God is great. We need to set that truth as our true north. We're talking about the compass that ultimately guides our decisions. When we're setting our goals to move toward the fullness and flourishing of life, this truth needs to be our true north. We need to keep it ever in front of us. We need to keep ourselves ever mindful of it because um, we're frail and weak creatures and we tend to forget it. We tend to forget that God is God, and we tend to start thinking we are. We tend to forget that God is great, and we start thinking, I have to be great. We kind of forget that God is in control, and we start thinking, man, I better be in control. We, we, we forget that God is telling a greater story for this world, one in which he will even take the bad things we do and work them for good. And we start thinking, I better get it right, because if I don't, 
I'm going to step outside of the bounds of what God can redeem. I'll mess up the story. We'll lose the plot line. And I will not be redeemed. And I will not be restored to the fullness and flourishing of life. God is great. So you don't have to be. God is great. So you don't have to be in control. You can relax. You know what I'm saying? Like all the loose ends that you feel like you got to keep track of and you got to know and you got to, man, just breathe. It's just an illusion anyway. You can't know them all (laughs) and you can't control them all. You're just pretending you can so that you can find some level of, of peace from the anxiety that comes from trying to be God when you're not. God is great. You don't have to be in control. God is great. You don't have to keep it all in mind. God is great. It's okay to make mistakes. You realize that? Like, you can't mess up the story in a way that God can't redeem it. Now, I'm not saying go do stupid things. That's not good pastor stuff. I'm saying if you happen to do stupid things, God's still great. Right? You're not going to derail God's plan. You may not experience all the goodness of it in this life. But that's the beauty, right? That's the beauty of serving a God who redeems and restores. We can bring even our mistakes. We can bring even our rebellion. We can bring even our sin and say to God, will you meet me in it? Will you deliver me from it? Will you use it somehow for my good and your glory? You're great. Because he's great, you can stop worrying that evil people will derail God's good intentions. Will you relax about politics, please? God's in control, not the president, not the party, not the liberal agenda or the right-wing news media. God's in control. God is great. Relax. Breathe a little bit. Right? People do people things. And people with power do power things, right? There is no power without the abuse of power. That's that's the story of human history ever since the fall, okay? So, yeah. Are they unrighteous? Sure. But my trust was never in them to begin with. God is great, right? God is great. Because he's great, man, I can relax. Because God is great, I can, I can trust that no failure is final. And no hurt will go unhealed. that no suffering will be ignored. God is great. And there is no abuse of power that he doesn't personally feel. He's the one who created power and entrusted power. And when people abuse power, listen to me, when when somebody abused their power against you, when they exercised their power in a way that defrauded you of what you should have had or robbed from you from what you should have kept, God was blasphemed because the person who exercised their power against you exercised it against the image of God in you. God felt it with you. You are never alone in your suffering. And God will redeem and restore. God is great. 
you can trust that there is no pain that will not be healed, no, no betrayal that will not be addressed, no injustice that will not be set right. God is great. Now, I want to focus on one specific application as we bring this home, and that's this, that, that because God is great, and as you're considering resolutions, as you're considering goals, as you're considering this new year, I want to encourage men, think about what it means to make the right risks. Because there are no changes without risks, right? There's no life without risk. Now, here's the thing is some of us never see risk and some of us see us everywhere, right? Because we're all on a spectrum, right? Over here, you got risk takers and over here, you got risk fakers, right? Risk takers are people that are like, like on the far extreme, they're adrenaline junkies. They have to be risking something in order to feel alive, right? Those are the guys that jump out of airplanes without parachutes and hope that one of their buddies will catch them on the way down, right? Those are the guys who literally jump off the side of a mountain wearing a kite. Not like a big kite, like literally a kite. Like, can you imagine the first guy who did that? I, <laughs> like, base jumping's a thing now, and I think it's really cool. But the first guy who did it, come on now. How stupid do you have to be, right? It's insane. Risk takers. Some people just kind of get a kick out of it. I'm on that side of the spectrum. I enjoy it. Like, I enjoy being on the side of a mountain. I enjoy being on the side of a 3,000-foot drop. I enjoy, I enjoy it, man. It just does something for me. Then there's risk fakers. And it doesn't mean that they're, they're always faking risk, but, but they're so afraid of risk that they will fake risk. They'll actually make risks up to keep them away from risk. You know, like, that's a risk over there, so I'll create 10 risks that keep me over here, right? So on the one side, you've got people jumping out of airplanes without parachutes. On the other side, you have people that are hoarders in their homes that never step outside because they're terrified. Risk takers, risk fakers. We're all on that spectrum somewhere, by the way, right? We're all going to gravitate either toward uh, being risk-averse or risk-attractive, okay? Um, and there's no right or wrong there. There honestly isn't. Risk is, is, some people take stupid risks, some people avoid good risks. But here's the thing, my point is there's no change without risk. Because every risk has the promise of reward. That's why we take risk, right? You can't get out of bed in the morning without risk. Why do you get out of bed? Because there's a reward for getting out of bed. <laughs> if there were no reward for getting out of bed, we would none of us get up, right? So, so we move into risk in order to receive the reward, and as a result, we perceive, we're constantly doing this benefit analysis where, where it's cost versus benefit, where it's risk versus reward. Is it worth the risk in order to achieve the reward, right? And so we move into friendships and we move into romantic relationships and we even get married and we have kids and we take new jobs and we get educations and there was nothing that we did that wasn't risky. But we were willing to step into that risk because of the promised reward, right? Um, and so as a result, we're continually evaluating whether the risk promises a reward that is worth it. Now, whether you pull back from the risk or push forward toward it, there's always risk, right? A ship that stays in the harbor and never sails is just as much at risk as the ship that's out at sea. They're just different risks. The risk of the ship in the harbor is of being completely meaningless and having no purpose. The risk of the, the ship at sea is that it might never come back. We got to figure out where we're at in that spectrum. But there is no life without risk. Even if we're just committed to avoiding risk, that's a risk in and of itself. So here's my challenge. We need to take the right risks. God is great. 
So we need to think about what are the right risks. Here's, all right, so here's my, here's my final appeal. And then I'll, I want you to take a risk on God, which I hate even saying that. I hated writing it because it feels cliche and it's so vague it's meaningless. Let me explain what I mean. Following God is risky because he's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. That's from C.S. Lewis. And what I mean by that is this. He comes in as an invading authority. He's not a paternal grandfather who simply wants to pat you on the head and keep you happy. He's an invading authority. He is an invading king. He has come to set up his domain, and you are part of his citizenship. There is no aspect of your life that he does not want under his authority. Not because he's power hungry, but because he is the essence of glory and his authority is our good. When we are most in line with God's will for our life, we are most invested in experiencing the fullness and flourishing of life. Because that's what it means to be created in the image of God. When you're a brand new believer, you kind of get this. I mean, I remember vividly when I became a believer, right? At 17, never having heard, the, really never having heard the gospel, and suddenly it invaded my heart. And, and it was like, oh my goodness, it was this, this, this surrendering, this yielding, like, holy cow, this invading God. He wants everything. Right? And suddenly I'm out doing things that previously I thought were stupid. I'm like out miming in Dubuque, Iowa at a drunken festival trying to get people to pay attention to God and hear the gospel, right? Taking risks I would have never taken. Why? Because suddenly I realized that there was no life without risk and there were right risks to take. That, that it was worth the risk, right? A hundred years from now, what's going to matter? Your new kitchen's not going to matter. Now, I'm not against new kitchens. Don't email me later, okay? New kitchens are awesome. But a new kitchen is not going to bring you into the fullness and flourishing of life. A new kitchen is not going to give you a deep sense of peace or release or freedom. A new kitchen is not going to give you any kind of genuine life meaning. It'll be cool. You'll enjoy it. It'll equip you to make really great dinners, which is awesome. Nice kitchens are awesome. I love them, okay? But what's going to matter 100 years from now? Not whether or not you took the risk to spend money on the kitchen. Go ahead and do that. That's fine. But you know what is, is, is going to matter? Whether or not you actually made your faith real and lived in light of the reality that we live in an enemy-occupied territory in which the king has already won the victory and is still coming back to claim his dominion. That we are here as his representatives. We are here as his citizens. We are here as his children to live in light of this greater kingdom, not in the captivity of the current kingdom. That that he encourages us to use the tools of this kingdom to advance the purpose and meaning of his kingdom. Our money, our time, our relational bandwidth. They're either going to be used to build and establish our own kingdom in this world as if it were permanent or to live in light of the revelation of His kingdom which is here and is coming and is real. 
Man, take a risk. Have that conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus and tell them. Take a risk and move into the flow of generosity. Instead of keeping and hoarding money as if it were an end to itself, recognize that it's simply a tool and a good tool that can be used in a useful and productive way to help me and others move into the fullness and flourishing of life. Be generous. Knowing that your security never came from holding, but from receiving. That the God who already gave to you will continue to give to you. The God who equipped you to sow generously will continue to equip you to grow generously. Take risks. Step out of your comfort zone. Set goals not just for earning, but giving. Set goals not just for um, family time, but set goals for mission time, where you're being generous in the lives of others. Set goals. Set goals, man, for every time the Spirit prompts you to move in obedience, you move in obedience. How's that? That's risky. Every time you feel the Spirit of God telling you, this is what will glorify me and do good for others, do it. (laughs) New believers, man, they kind of have that sense, and I love them because they're reckless. Like new believers, man, they're the ones that when they first get this, they understand that God is an invading force, and they have come to submit. And they make, like established Christians, totally nervous. Because they're out there like, like, hey, this is what God did today. What did God do in your life today? Uh, I don't know. I had ham sandwich for lunch. That's great. Did, you know what I'm saying? Like we, we get so content with going through the motions, we lose the wonder of the fact that God himself dwells within us. We get so content going to church and doing church and getting in the rhythms of church and surrounding ourselves with church things and church people, we forget that we've been left here with a mission. And that mission can take on many, many forms. But the mission is always the same. Love God and love others. To be ambassadors for Christ. Emissaries of the kingdom. To be children. Who are inviting others to the family. And sharing the riches of the family as freely as we've received them. That's what I mean. So as you're thinking about your goals for this year, as you're thinking about what you want to accomplish, who you want to become, what you want your life to be like, make it a goal to take risks for God. You know what I mean by that now. To actually step out in faith and to test God's word. And trust that he is great. And that you're not. Put him to the test. Because when you do, you will come to appreciate, not just theologically that he's great, but you'll come to appreciate personally. Because the more you experience his greatness, the more it awakens your faith. So let's take the right risks. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. And then we are going to share communion. And closing song. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a great God, that you are in control, that you are sovereign. Um, Lord, I'm, I'm, you know, you know my heart, Lord. You know um, I have deep 
struggles at times. With the evil of this world and the brokenness of this world, with, with harm that I've received, with the pain that I've seen others in, with, Lord, you know. And Lord, it sometimes just breaks me as I consider the tension between the reality of what is and the reality of what you reveal about yourself, that you are, even in the midst of all of this brokenness, telling a better story. And I know, even in the midst of the struggle, I'm not supposed to understand it. I'm just supposed to believe it. I'm not supposed to be able to, to make it all make sense. I am supposed to be freed to let it not make sense for now. Trusting that you're the one who will make sense of it. Because I know at the end of the day, there's no one who's suffered more than you. There's no one who's lost more than you. There's no one who's tasted a greater pain than you. And you did it voluntarily. You did it willingly. You did it intentionally. That you might redeem and restore us. That you might free us into the blessing that was our creational intent but we had lost. Lord, you are great. And we celebrate your greatness. And we are so grateful that your power never wavered. And that that power has always been an expression of your love. Increase our faith. Allow us, Lord, to take the right risks. Lord, you do come in to take over. You do come in to tear things down and rebuild and, and um, sometimes we just want to remodel. Give us the courage to allow you to do in our lives what you want to do. Give us the courage to trust that everything you tear down will be rebuilt. Everything you dismantle will be reassembled. Not in the way it was, but in the way it should be. Give us the faith, Lord, to take risks because you are a great God. And because you have met us in the person of Jesus, who is the invisible, the, the, the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. And it's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen.